The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Dennis Lee, and Cody Martin, presenting Book 3, World Well Lost, Thunder in Heaven, Part 3, written by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin, read by Veronica Jaguer. This speed fiend, or whatever he called himself, really knew how to drive. John had managed to strap himself to the vehicle with a harness that seemed to have been affixed as an afterthought for whatever passengers this insane contraption would carry. They were moving at blazing speed, the car sliding and dodging through the fighting, barely missing a CCCP or Echo member here, sideswiping a Nazi there. John couldn't focus on that, though. He still had a job to do if he wanted to really help his friends. Despite the jolting movement from the vehicle's shocks as it sped over rubble and wreckage, John was able to accurately target Ubermensch. It helped that he was one friggin' big Nazi, nearly as big as the powered trooper armor all on its own. John fired off bursts of flame, aiming for the Nazi leader's face and chest as fast as he could. He guessed that he wouldn't be able to kill him, or even injure him, but he could at least distract him, keep the bastard from going after someone like Upir Soviet. Ubermensch was cursing, swatting at the flames as they splattered against his face. He swiped his sword at random, trying to swing it in whatever direction he thought John was firing from. Arcs of the sword's energy cut into the ground or flew harmlessly into the air before dissipating. One of them even bisected a Nazi trooper that Unter was fighting. The Russian looked up puzzledly as his opponent split into two halves, falling to the ground. Insect, what do you think you can accomplish with your little buzzing? Ubermensch peered angrily through the flames. The Nazi leader was able to see for a moment between John's shots. He oriented himself, setting his feet before he charged ahead. He had guessed correctly where Speedfiend was going to be driving through. Ubermensch lowered his shoulder, intercepting the vehicle. Its entire frame shook violently as he collided with them. The Nazi moved almost as fast as John could at his top speed. The impact destroyed the entire front end of Speedfiend's racer, crunched metal and engine components squealing pitifully as smoke poured from under what passed for a hood. That's not good, shouted the Echo Op. The front end burst into flames, bathing both of them in greasy smoke. That's really not good. Putting the vehicle into a suicide slide, Speed Fiend brought them to a halt, crashing the side into a wrecked school bus. You better get out of here, pal. I'll deal with the fire. Go kick that guy's ass. John unbuckled himself, leaping from the ruined vehicle. Ubermensch was wearing the same smug smile that he'd had when he'd killed the commissar. Well, communist pig, I slaughtered your sow. Shall I make bacon from her piglet? Shall I smoke you over your own pitiful flames? John started to advance on the Nazi. Make your last words a prayer, sucker. There ain't gonna be enough of you to bury once I'm done. John dropped down to kneel, bracing his right hand with his left. Just as Ubermensch began to raise his sword, John amped up his flames almost the highest he could 
before he risked losing control. With a sharp gasp, he released the fire. The rubble underneath the beam, which was the size of a man, exploded as any residual moisture instantly vaporized. Trash combusted, and the air took on the same ozone tang that happened after lightning struck. The blast hit Ubermensch dead on, and actually bowled him over onto his back. One Nazi trooper nearly one hundred feet behind him was hit with part of the strike, exploding as the atmosphere inside of his suit superheated and combusted in an instant. Ubermensch struggled to his feet. He looked genuinely surprised and even a little bit... scared. His sword was sputtering uselessly in his hand, and his entire chest plate had been melted off, leaving his bare chest marred by the impact of the blast. He stood, staring at John for a very long moment, and then locked eyes with him. His eyes were very cold, and in that moment, the hatred that filled them rocked John with an all-too-familiar feeling. But neither of them had a chance to act further. The remaining crippled war machine lurched up over the building behind Ubermensch, and an ear-shattering squeal filled the air. The very few remaining troopers, the dead, and Ubermensch all flew upwards, attracted by whatever force the machines exerted to recall their men. And as soon as the sphere was covered, bristling like a dandelion from hell with its dead and living, it shot straight up and was out of sight in a moment. The battle was over. At a great cost, they'd won an ambush designed to decimate them and John could only help to feel very weary. Sestra! Soviet was tugging at Bella's arm. Sestra, you cannot help her. She is gone. There was a buzzing in Bella's ears. She could barely hear Sovi. She couldn't see. She knew she was in trouble, but damned if she was going to give up. Nat wasn't gone. Not yet. And Bella wasn't going to let her go. Not without going with her. Gray faded to black. And just like they always said, there was a light. But instead of Bella going towards the light, the light came to her. You would give your life to save her. Bella knew that voice. Her wordless ascent made the light bloom around her with warmth and a new level of energy. The willingness is enough, and it is permitted. Take what you need, little sister. Abruptly, Bella could see and hear again, and as had happened before with John Murdoch, she found herself connected with a life force that left her gasping. But she was not so overwhelmed that she wasn't able to think and act and siphon off enough to plug that energy-sucking hole that was Red Savior, enough to stimulate every cell in her metahuman body into override, enough to heal her, and enough to jolt heart and brain into action again. Beneath her hands, 
Red Savior began to cough and sputter and gasp for air. Silviette fainted. As the war machine sped upwards, Ubermensch kept his eyes fixed on the American swine that had struck him. He would have remained to destroy the dog if he'd been able. If he'd had the means of detaching himself, he'd leap down from half a mile up to land on him at this very moment. He had thought his one great enemy would be that woman, that daughter of his namesake's nemesis. But no. She was nothing. He had crushed her like a fly, and the victory had had no lasting savor. But this man, whoever he was, how dared he challenge Ubermensch and the Fourth Reich? His hatred burned, burned like the man's own plasma fires, burned like the heart of hell. And Ubermensch made a vow to himself. Whatever the cost, he would find out who this man was. He would make it his life's task to destroy everything he cared for, everything he was connected to, everything he wanted. And then, and only then, Ubermensch would destroy him. John had extinguished his fires as soon as the Nazis were out of sight, retreating with their dead and wounded. He felt horrible, spread thin and raggedy. Despite that, he kept his eyes fixed on the sky for a few extra moments. It was chance that he was looking up at the right moment to notice the flash. He almost reignited his fires out of reflex before he recognized the light. Flames and feathers. Seraphim. His eyes immediately shot to the patch of ruined building where Bella and Soviet were crouched over their dead commissar. Saw Bella's eyes go wide, Savior's body lurch and begin coughing as the life flooded back into it, and then Yadviga fainting at their side. Just as quickly as it had started, it was over. A single feather floated down from the heavens, carried by the wind. Another miracle had been performed. John surveyed the area. It was a battleground, a charnel pit a few moments before. Blood still spattered and pooled on the ground, on the piles of debris, with what was left of the bodies of the rebs dotting it at odd intervals. Unter and a few other CCCPers had policed the very few survivors, binding their wrists with oversized zip ties. Another squad of his comrades had already begun the task of laying out the bodies of the Rebs in a line, their weapons disassembled and thrown into a pile. Gotta make things all nice and tidy for when the cops and echoes show up, he thought with a tinge of bitterness. This was definitely going to stir up a hornet's nest. Nazis working in league with the Rebs and making a concerted assault on a section of Atlanta. Lots of paperwork and wringing of hands, to be sure. Paperwork. John walked stiffly over to where he had left Perun's body. 
The war veteran's hair was matted with dust and sweat, and his eyes were still gazing lifelessly toward where the enemy had been moments ago. John knelt down, brushing his hand over the dead man's face to close his eyes. In a testament to the skill and the teamwork of the CCCP, and no small amount of luck, Perun was the only one on their side killed, if you didn't count the commissar, that is. Several people were injured, some of them severely. Strebog and Zmei were both in need of immediate attention and would have to be casualty evacuated to the CCCP HQ as soon as possible. The rest of their force was a collection of cuts, scrapes, fractures, and gunshot wounds. Bella and a revived Soviet were already making their rounds, tending to the most serious wounds first. John coughed into his hand, racking his body with pain. He walked towards his comrades in order to help with the cleanup effort, dismissing the specks of blood that he had coughed into his glove. Over the course of the next three hours, the CCCP finished accounting for the Rebs and weapons. A contingent of Echo personnels arrived in their fancy cars, taking reports and helping to add to the organized chaos involved with cleaning up a large amount of death and destruction. Molotov had taken charge, given the commissar's condition, and was making sure that everything was taken care of. When it was finally time to head back to HQ, John was operating on automatic. He was just too damn tired to get worked up, to muster anything more than the necessary energy to walk and nod when addressed. Things were generally back to normal at the HQ in short order. Those with wounds had them tended to, and everyone else went back to their assigned duties. Beneath it all was an undercurrent of anxious concern. His comrades whispered to each other about what had happened to the commissar, her death and miraculous resurrection. John ignored it as best as he could, stripping out of his patrol uniform and into one of the CCCP's issue coveralls. He was given a leave on his paperwork by Untermensch. It can wait for later, comrade. Get rest first. John wasted no time signing out and leaving the compound. He knew that he was suffering a stress reaction to the entire incident and knew how to deal with it. He just didn't care enough to bother. Not wanting to head back to his squat to be alone with his thoughts, he started walking aimlessly. He avoided the more heavily populated parts of his neighborhood. After about an hour, he'd recovered enough to start really thinking again. How come we didn't see him coming? What's the connection between the Rebs and the Nazis? Who was the big sucker in charge of them? Why Perun die and Nat get a second chance? It was that last thought that stuck in his mind like a burning ember, stirring up his emotions. First, there was grief and guilt over the death of his squad commander, a man he hardly had time to know. Then there was anger. At the Nazis, the Rebs, and, surprisingly... At Sarah. John's feet had purpose now, and he started walking faster. Then he broke into a jog, 
then a run. And finally he was sprinting as fast as his enhanced body could carry him. Hardly registering it, he was back at his squat. He vaulted up the stairway, through his apartment, finally bursting through the roof access hard enough to shake the frame. The seraphim knelt on the tar and gravel roof, her fires dim, her head bent so that a cascade of flame hair covered her face. She was as still as a statue, and apparently so turned inward that she didn't even hear him, nor hear the roof door slam open. Or did she? Was she just ignoring him? Blowing him off? John spoke, his voice even and low. Sarah? Slowly she turned her head to face him. As always, her expression was serene, her eyes that unreadable blank gold. But there were tears on those two perfect cheeks. Only for a moment, however. A graceful hand passed over her face, and they were gone, erased as if they had never fallen. John Murdoch, she said, with no hint of emotion in her voice. You surprised me. Then, with just a touch of irony, she added, I hope you approved of the taxi I sent for you. Seeing Sarah crying stirred something in John, and he felt some of the anger leave him. Still, he was far too stubborn to get completely over it, so he walked up to her. Speed fiend, right. Where do I know him from? The first time we met. John shook his head uncomprehending when it dawned on him. The truck driver. The fella he had saved or tried to when he first showed up in Atlanta. The driver had been ambushed by a gang of looters, and John had killed them. He still remembered the look of fear on the driver's face when he first tried to approach him to help him get to a hospital. I take it you got him some help. With echo from the way he looked. He will only join Echo in the next hour. His talent emerged after he healed, and he has been learning it on his own. A pause. I sent you what help was permitted. I came and told him it was time. And where? And what of Nat? Isn't that a bit of a bigger job than you're allowed? John set his jaw. He could feel the anger creeping up on him again, but he was doing his best to keep it in check. I did not heal her. She looked directly into his eyes and blinked once. This is difficult to explain. 
try. Perhaps, if you regard it as a conservation of energy, miracles like energy do not come from nothing. They must be paid for. For every miracle, something miraculous must in turn be sacrificed. Only in this way can the law of free will not be subverted. Another very slow blink. In this case, it was not so big a miracle as you think. A very, very small one, in fact. Natalia Shostakovich is a metahuman and a very resilient one. John crossed his arms. And what about Perun? He was too, and now he's just a very dead man. There. She shook her head. It is complicated. He was an old, old man. He had outlived most of his friends and comrades, and all of his lovers. Part of him was ready to move onwards. Part of him wanted to do so long ago. But the rest of him did not want to do so in in a manner unbefitting a warrior. He knew what he was doing, and that it would probably kill him. And there was no one willing to make that sacrifice for the miracle, for him. You're so sure about that. What about me? His jaw tightened, and he consciously tried to relax, with very little effect. One eyebrow rose. So, will you give me your life? Not your death, John Murdoch. Your life. He shook his head. I don't follow. Then you would not do so. Belladonna knew what I asked of her, and gave it without my need to ask for it. He turned away from her, spinning away quickly. God damn it. It isn't friggin' right. John Murdoch was awash with pain. Seraphim felt it. Oh, she felt the pain of every mortal she was near, but somehow his pain was more immediate, harder to bear. Guilt, anger, more guilt, mourning. The uncertainty, the sheer inability to understand what had happened, the agony of having no faith, 
nothing to believe in. And in this terrible grief and guilt she read the lacerations of guilt still present, but from his past, the soul-deep wounds of having survived. She did not physically reel back from the impact, but it was the equivalent of being struck by a tidal wave of pain. The program. Jessica. Fire jumped into her mind. Images of the woman John had only known as Jessica. Sterile rooms, training areas, an operation table, his fires manifesting for the first time, a man with cruel eyes, a chair with straps used for executions. Now she read it clearly, and her tears fell again for him. She reached out to him, trying to offer him wordless comfort. He could not know. He did not believe that death was hardly an ending. So he needed that comfort all the more. Be at peace. All will be well. John recoiled from her touch, whirling around to face her. What are you doing? She winced back from his anger, which lashed her like a whip across the face. I... I only meant to ease your pain. His face contorted with indignation. Damn it, Sarah. People are supposed to feel horrible sometimes. We ain't supposed to be happy and content all the time with everything that happens. He shook his head. His anger faded to nothing just as quickly as it had flared up. He suddenly looked... hollow. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have snapped like that. But... I don't know. He turned away from her again, facing the edge of the roof. I should not treat you as an unknowing child, incapable of understanding anything more complicated than I need and I want, she said after a moment. But it is hard, because to me, you are a child. You are so very very young. She sighed, her mind filled with the memory of the moment when the infinite said, I am, and everything began. She and her siblings had been born in that one moment. And I am so very, very old. She groped for words. John Murdoch, there is one great law that governs all that is. You know, he said, interrupting her. You can just call me John. Feel like I'm in school when you call me by my whole name. He graced her with a shaky grin. She felt 
warmth, human warmth, and felt her lips curving in a return smile. John, you above all should appreciate this. The law of the universe is a simple one. All that is mortal has free will. Please, think about that for a moment, and consider what that means to the infinite, and to those of us that serve the infinite. She paused for a long breath. The infinite itself knows all and is all, of course. And thus, it cannot act, because that would violate free will. Only those who cannot know and see all can. And the more one can see, the less one is allowed to act. I am allowed, comparatively, only little, little things. Things that will not cause imbalance. Advice, mostly. Rarely intervention. Seems like since the war started, you've been intervening quite a bit. Pain, this time her own, almost made her cry out. How many have died, John? Not just combatants. Innocents. So many, many I was not permitted to save. Or could not more often than was not permitted. I cannot be everywhere at all times. Most often. I have to choose. Choose only one. One who is needed. Will be needed. And the rest. She was weeping again. The sparrow falls, and I cannot keep it from falling. But that does not mean I do not see it and mourn its passing. He sighed. It's triage. While you say you're part of something all-powerful, you aren't all-powerful, Sarah. She sensed a calm in him that had not been there when he confronted her. That calm resonated in her and, oddly, gave her comfort back. She had been wrong, as she had suspected, in treating him as a child that needed solace. Perhaps merely talking had been all that he needed. Or could it be that it was not just talking? Could it be that he had needed to talk with her, to listen to her, to have her explain, treat him as he deserved to be treated, to begin to get answers indeed, but not just from any source, but from her? And 
there was no doubt. He, in his turn, was comforting her, though he could not know it. Thank you, John, she said softly. It is hard. It is good to... to be forgiven. Don't fret. He shifted uncomfortably. You know, I was wrong to jet out of HQ so fast. There's no doubt plenty that still needs doing because of the attack. Ubermensch, she told him, answering the unspoken question in his mind. How bad is he? She considered what she should tell him, and finally settled on something he could have found for himself. Consider the past, she said. When did they first appear? How did they first appear? The metas as a whole. Consider the pattern. Your answer will be there. Also, consider what he called himself. He is not the first of that name. The futures were shifting again, and she scanned through them, each word charting a change as she spoke. Ask Natalia. Ask her father. He nodded, turning again to leave. I'll talk with you again. Soon? Warmth. Happiness. Lifted her spirit again. I would like that, John. I would like that very much. He smiled, and then left closing the battered roof access door behind him. She felt her mouth smiling again. This was nothing like the joy of the siblings, and yet it was as intense in its own way, this happiness. And very mortal. Oh, she knew about the pains and joys of mortals in the same way as one of them, landlocked all his life, knew about the ocean from reading, viewing, hearing recordings, but knowing about something and experiencing it were two very, very different things. It made her curious. It made her want to experience more, but not with just anyone. Have I a friend? she thought, suddenly startled by the idea. There was no answer. But then, she didn't expect one. The Infinite was still keeping its secrets about John Murdoch from her. She would have to discover them herself.